The significance of this week cannot be overstated. Everything in the Christian faith rises and falls on the reality of Holy Week. Everything that took place from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday not only has historical implications in your life and mine, but it also carries deep theological ramifications, not just in the here and now, but in the thereafter. Everything about our faith rises and falls on the reality of this week. It was on this day, approximately 2,000 years ago, when Jesus rode triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem to the thunderous applause of the crowd as they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They waved green palm branches frantically to communicate their patriotism and their zeal. Jesus rode into town on a donkey. He entered into the temple and cleansed it of all of the liars and the thieves and the robbers. And Jesus spent the first few days of that week teaching the word of God in the streets and on the temple complex. On Thursday night of this given week, Jesus met with his disciples. They had the Passover meal. He instituted what you and I call the Lord's Supper. He took two very common elements, the bread and the cup. He took the bread, he broke it, blessed it, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body. Take and eat in remembrance of me. In a similar way, he took the wine, he poured it, he blessed it, gave it to his disciples and said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of their sins. Oh, on this night, they sang a song. They went to the garden to pray. Jesus was betrayed by one of his own. He endured an all-night barrage of interrogations and false allegations. Early on Friday morning of this given week, Jesus, who was already beaten and bruised, spit upon, bloody, as he stood before Pontius Pilate. And Pilate probably would have released him if it had not been for the crowd who said, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate signed the papers. Jesus stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem with a cross strapped to his back. He was led by Roman soldiers. He was accompanied by two common thieves, criminals. They went outside the city gate, went up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. And there the Roman soldiers executed Jesus. They threw him on the ground like a rag doll. They stretched his arms to the point of ligament separation. They drove rusty spikes through his wrist and his feet. With each swing of the hammer, the body of our Lord pulsated with pain. And as they drove the spikes, his precious blood spilled and splattered onto the ground. They hoisted him into the air with a thud, the cross came to its still spot in the earth. And Jesus hung on the cross for about six hours on a given Friday in the third decade of the first century. Jesus spoke a few words from the cross, about seven statements. At high noon, there was darkness that covered the land, darkness that could be felt. It was eerie. 
And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus declared, it is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He bowed his head and gave up his ghost. And Jesus, the author of life, hung lifeless on the cross. The one who had opened up deaf ears and and opened up blind eyes, told the dead to come back to life again. This one was stilled in silence as he hung precariously on a cross made of wood, as he dangled between two thieves. They took his dead corpse off the cross, placed him into a borrowed grave, sealed the entrance of the tomb with a large stone. And for the rest of Friday and all day Saturday, even into the early hours of Sunday, the disciples walked around like zombies, for their dream was dead. Their hope was gone. Can you imagine their shock and their surprise when it was early on Sunday morning? that some ladies came to say the tomb is empty. Early on Sunday morning, they ran to see that the stone was rolled away, not to get Jesus out, but to get those boys in. Early on Sunday morning, Jesus burst forth with all power and healing in his hands. He was victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. I don't know if humanity knows the severity of what happened on that day, but creation knows because the sun refused to shine on Sunday. The birds stopped singing, but early on Sunday morning, the sun peeked over the horizon. And the birds never sang a sweeter melody because on that day they declared that the king of all kings has been raised from the dead. Everything about our faith rises and falls on the historical reality and the theological implications of Holy Week. Between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. Because of this, the gospel is true. Because Jesus died, we can live. Because the innocent one was declared guilty, so we who are guilty might be declared innocent in God's sight. Because Jesus died, you and I can live forever. The gospel now finds its fulfillment in the reality of what took place on this week some 2,000 years ago. And that gospel went forward. It went unhindered. It it, it went uh, boldly as it went to every nation, every tribe, every kindred, every tongue. In the first century, God used a man by the name of Paul. And Paul was used to take that good, sweet news of the gospel to dead, dying people. He went to most of the known world in the first century. Your New Testament has 13 letters that are penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and written by the human named Paul. One such letter is the letter of Colossians. The real theme and purpose of this letter is to communicate the supremacy of Christ. It's not just that Jesus is sufficient, he's sovereign. It's not just that he is prominent, he is preeminent. 
The theme of the Colossian letter can be summed up in this statement, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything you need. You read the pages of the Colossian correspondence and you come away with this conclusion that Jesus plus nothing equals everything that you and I need. Today we begin a nine-part sermon series as we stroll through this sublime letter. I want to begin today by reading a few verses from Colossians chapter 1. I want to read in your hearing verses 9 to 14. If you have a Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Colossians chapter 1, allow me to begin at verse 9. I'll conclude at verse 14. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. And asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and Joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This morning I want to speak to you about reasons to rejoice. And I need to focus on verses 12 to 14. Let me read them once again in your hearing. Joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. You may be seated. While it's true that I've got to focus our attention and camp in verses 12, 13, and 14, let me just set the table for you rather quickly. Paul begins our passage in verse 9 by saying, for this reason, we've not stopped praying for you. It begs the question, what is the reason that prompted the prayers? You look back into the previous eight verses and you quickly come to this conclusion that in verse 4, He says, you are a congregation who are known by your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for the saints. You're known for your faith in Christ. You're known for your love for the saints. And in verse 7, the apostle Paul, who is not the founding pastor of this church uh, in Colossae. In fact, Paul, as he's writing this letter, is incarcerated in a Roman jail cell. But he says in verse 7, your pastor, Epaphras, he is a faithful servant of Christ. Friends, I don't know about you, but I want to be part of that church. Because that church has a faithful pastor. And that church is known for its faith in God and its love for the saints. 
It begs the question, when people think about you, when people think about me, what do they think of? What do they think about? What are we known for? When people think of us, when, he, when people think of us individually and collectively, do they think of us like Paul thought of this ancient church when he says, look, you are being led by a faithful pastor and you're known by your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for the saints. For this reason, we've not stopped praying for you. You know, sometimes you think the only time to pray for somebody is when life is messed up. But sometimes you need to pray when life is going well. You don't just pray when life is tough. You pray when life is great. You don't just pray when somebody's in trouble. You pray even when they're in triumph. Paul says, I've not stopped praying for you because what the world needs more than anything else, they need to look at the church and they need to see faithfulness from the pastor. They need to see faith from the, 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 the members of the church towards God. And they need to see love that you have one for another as the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ. What the world needs today is the same thing they needed 2,000 years ago. This world, our culture, needs to see a church madly in love with Jesus. Because everything about our faith rises and falls on the reality of what took place some 2,000 years ago during Holy Week. For this reason, we've not stopped praying for you. And what's the prayer? Our prayer is that, Paul writes, you will be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. That word filled could be better understood as controlled. Because when a person is filled with something, they're controlled by that something. If you are filled with anger, you're controlled by anger. If you're filled with lust, you're controlled by lust. If you are filled with resentment, chances are you're controlled by that resentment. So Paul says, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. Because if you're filled with the knowledge of the will of God, you'll be controlled by the will of God. And I want you to, Paul says, I want you to live a life worthy of the Lord. What does that life look like? A life worthy of the Lord? Well, in verses 10, 11, and 12, he quickly gives you four participles. Those four participles show you how you live a life worthy of the Lord. Quickly, let me just tell you, uh, bearing fruit, growing in knowledge, being strengthened for great perseverance, and the fourth one, joyfully giving thanks to the Lord. This is where we're going to camp out for a few minutes that fourth participle of how you live a life worthy of the Lord, that fourth description is that you are joyfully giving thanks to the Lord. I contend this morning that because of what Jesus did on your behalf some 2,000 years ago, you have reasons to rejoice. You have reasons to joyfully give thanks to the Lord. In fact, in verses 12, 13, and 14, he gives you four words that describe who you are based on what Jesus has done for you at the cross of Calvary and the empty tomb of Easter Sunday. And because of these four words, this is your identity. And because you know your identity, then you know your proper activity. Your identity always precedes your activity. Your activity never precedes your identity. It is who you are that determines what you do. It is never what you do that determines who you are. 
We live in a world where identity is confused. People don't know who they are. They're choosing who they want to be or who they think they might be on this day or that day. And my friends, it is a sad state of affairs when a person walks this sod and they don't know their identity. Really, your identity is not up to you to choose because you're not God. Only God gets to choose your identity. So Paul comes to the end of this opening passage and he says, let me give you four words that describe your identity. Friend, this is who you are if you are in Christ. I'll give you four words. I'll give you four statements. They're straight from the scripture. Then I'll take my seat. The first word is qualified. It's right there in verse 12. God has qualified you. We know something about being qualified, don't we? The boss says we're qualified for the job. The coach says we've qualified for the tournament. It's the government that says we have qualified for social security benefits. The word qualified means to be made fit. To to be made fit to receive something. You are qualified Here in this passage, Paul says that God has qualified you. I want you to notice that it is God who has qualified you. You do not qualify yourself. You can't qualify yourself. In fact, you have disqualified yourself. I have disqualified myself because of sin. We are dead in our sins. And by nature, we are objects of God's wrath. Because of our sinful disobedience, we have disqualified ourselves from salvation. But it is only God who can qualify you. God has qualified you. You can't do it to yourself or for yourself. It is only something that God can do. And what has God qualified you for? Look at the text. God has qualified you to share in the inheritance To share means to partake. To partake, to receive the inheritance. All right, right now I'm about to get itchy and happy because God has just said I am qualified for an inheritance. I don't know if any of you are in line to receive a rich inheritance from Daddy Warbucks. I don't know if any of you have a sugar daddy. I don't know if any of you have somebody in your life and you are standing in line to get a rich inheritance from somebody who's gone before you. But regardless of whether you have an earthly inheritance or not, here in this passage, Paul says that God has qualified you for his inheritance. You are in line. You are now fit to receive to share in the inheritance. Now you, you know, not everybody gets an inheritance. Only the beneficiaries receive the inheritance. And that's determined by the benefactor. The one who owns everything, has the right to give his stuff to who he wants to. And here Paul says, because of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, because of your faith in the accomplished work of the Lord, God has now qualified you to share in his inheritance of salvation. And he further qualifies it as that which is given to the saints in the kingdom of the light. You see, God has qualified you to be a saint. The word saint means a holy one. You are holy because God is holy. 
There's more than a few of you who sit there right now and think to yourself, now, Pastor, I think I've pulled the wool over your eyes because I'm not holy. That's okay. I know it. I know that we don't always act holy. But that doesn't change our identity. We are qualified. We are fit because of the work of Jesus to receive the inheritance of salvation which God gives to his holy ones, the saints, and that's who you are. That's your identity. Because you are a saint in the kingdom of light. In the New Testament, the word light is always synonymous with truth and purity. If you're truly a saint of King Jesus, you love the light. You long for the light. You run after the light. You want to dance in the light. You want to dwell in the light. You want to be a recipient of truth and purity. Because this is who you are. You are qualified. And God has qualified you. The second statement I'll give you is the word rescued. It's right there in verse 13. God has rescued you from the dominion of darkness. Because of what Jesus did for you on the cross, not only has God qualified you, but now he has also rescued you. The word rescue can also be understood as delivered. God has delivered you. Delivered you from what? From the dominion of darkness. Before faith in Jesus Christ, you were a resident of darkness. You were a participant of darkness. You were an author of darkness. You loved darkness. You loved doing dark things in dark places with dark people. You just loved darkness because you resided in the dominion of darkness. The word dominion, it means jurisdiction, it means authority, it means power. You were under the power of darkness. Because of your sin, not only had you disqualified yourself, but you were dead in the sight of God. Spiritually speaking, you were stillborn, you're deceased, and you just dwelled in the dominion of darkness. But because of Christ Jesus, your identity is not only that you're qualified, but you're also rescued. You are delivered from darkness. You know, I've heard well-intended Christians who say, Pastor, you know, I just need to be delivered from an addictive behavior. I just need to be delivered from a bad habit. I just need to be delivered from a character flaw. And with all of the love and strength I have inside of me, I just want to say to you, friend, if you are in Christ, you are delivered. It's, it's, it's a word that is spoken in the past tense to communicate an action that's already taken place. You are delivered. If you are in Christ, you are delivered. You may not always act like it. You might try to retrieve and retreat back in that old self, but you can't stay there very long because you are delivered. You are rescued by God. It's not that you received a partial salvation. You received a full salvation. That salvation is full and free and forever. If you are in Christ, you are fully rescued. This is who you are. This is your identity. And if you know your identity, then you'll know your activity. If you know who you are, then you know how to behave. Because God has qualified you. God has rescued you. Third, God has transferred you. I'm still in verse 13, and some of y'all are looking at your scripture text and looking at verse 13 and say, I can't find the word transferred. 
you're right. If your translation is anything like mine, it says that you are brought out. That you're brought into the kingdom of the son he loves. The word brought can better be understood as transferred. You know something about transfer, don't you? A transfer means that you leave one place, really never to return, and you are plopped and placed in another place forever to reside. That's a transfer. Uh, if you are like me and you love college athletics, in these recent months and years, we understand something about transfers, don't we? Because nowadays, uh, people speak of the transfer portal. A player is not happy where he is, so he goes into a transfer portal. Never seen a transfer portal. I like to know what it looks like. But he enters into this transfer portal, maybe like a telephone booth of Superman. Maybe he goes into that transfer portal, and he comes out no longer connected to that old college. Now he's got a new place to reside, a new place to play, a new team to root for. Now he's on a different team, never to go back to the old team because he went through the transfer portal. What Paul is saying is that you, my friend, if you are in Christ because of what Jesus did for you some 2,000 years ago during the Holy Week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, God has put you in God's transfer portal. He has brought you out of darkness. He's placed you in the kingdom of his son whom he loves. You have a different team. You, you are part of a different uh, circumstance. You've got a different destiny. You've got a different purpose. He has transferred you. You are gladly part of God's transfer portal because he has transferred you. And where did he transfer you into? It's not your kingdom. You did not get transferred into your kingdom where you're the boss, no, you got transferred into the kingdom of his son, whom he loves. You see, as a child of God, we always bow the knee to King Jesus. Our identity is found and bound in him. We don't have to make up our identity. We don't have to be confused about who we are. We are servants of the king. We have been transferred into his kingdom, the kingdom of the son, and this is a son that God loves. And if God loves the son, God loves all the people that the son brings with him into his kingdom. So you are loved by the Lord because of what Christ has done for you at the cross. This week is so important. The activities are not only historical, but they're theological in their implications. Because of what Jesus did for us on this holy week, God has qualified you. God has rescued you. God has transferred you. And fourth and finally, God has redeemed you. I'm in verse 14 now. We find redemption in him. We know something about redemption, don't we? The ancient word for redemption, it literally means to purchase a prisoner with payment. That's redemption. To purchase a prisoner with payment. And Paul says, God has redeemed you. He has purchased you. And you are, before Christ, incarcerated in your sin 
You're a prisoner of your own doing. You, you are one who... You are one who just went your own way and did your own thing. But now, now he has purchased you. He purchased you with the richest of riches, the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul adds a tagline to the very end. He says, the forgiveness of sins. In the New Testament especially, redemption is synonymous with the forgiveness of sins. And I can't think of anything sweeter than the forgiveness of sins. If I've wronged somebody, and, and I do it uh, far too frequently, but if that person looks at me and says, I forgive you, oh, there's nothing sweeter. If that forgiveness comes from my spouse, if it, it comes from my children, it comes from uh, another individual, it comes from a church member. If I've wronged somebody and I, I say, I'm sorry for what I've done, and they look at me and they say, Davin, I forgive you. There is nothing sweeter than that. And if that's true in my earthly relationships, how much greater that must be true in my relationship with God. When God looks at me and he looks at you and he says, I know you are a sinful scallywag. I know you're a wretch and a mess, but I forgive you because of the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There, there is nothing greater than the forgiveness of God. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain, no. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is a fountain that is, uh, there is a fountain that has some blood and it's drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood and they lose all of their guilty stain. The dying thief rejoices to see that fountain in his day and there may I though vile as he wash all of my sins away can I get an amen wash all of my sins away <laughs> listen friends I realize there are times when your flesh may entice you there are times when the devil may try to tempt you maybe occasions when the world tries to deter you, but you just need to know who you are. You are qualified by God. You've been rescued by God. You've been transferred into his kingdom by God. You've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh. All this is made possible because of God and God alone. I know that sometimes you say, but pastor, I, I, I'm saved, but there are times when I'm selfish. I'm, there are times when, when I know I am righteous, but there are other times when I'm still raunchy. There are times when I am innocent and I know I'm innocent, but I'm still ignorant. And some of y'all are saying, you just described my husband. I didn't know, I, I didn't just describe your husband. But I just described you as well. For all of us fit into that category. But this morning, I want you to know who you are in Christ Jesus. Because who you are determines what you do. Your identity precedes your activity. Your activity flows from your identity. Do you know who you are? Do you know that God has qualified you? That God has rescued you? That God has transferred you? That God has redeemed you. Do you believe 
the historical accuracy and the theological implications of Holy Week from 2,000 years ago? If you don't, then today you can. Today you can simply admit to God that your way has left you messed up. You've been your own God. You've done your own thing. And it's ended in a lot of destruction, heartache and hurtache and headache. And this morning, you just need to admit to God that you are a sinner in need of salvation. You need to believe that Jesus, this Jesus, down the cross for your sins. And you need to confess that Jesus is Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because Jesus plus nothing equals everything that you need. Friend, do you believe the historical accuracy and the theological implications of Holy Week? If you do, then live it out. Live like you're qualified. Live like you've been rescued. Live like you've been in God's transfer portal. And live like the redeemed. Because for you, Jesus plus nothing equals everything that you need. Jesus plus nothing equals everything that you need. This Jesus is supreme. He's not, he's not just sufficient. He's sovereign. He's not just prominent. He's preeminent. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And today, won't you be identified with him? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give you uh, this day and this invitation. And Father, we pray um, that if there's one here who does not know you as Savior and Lord, that today will be the day of salvation. Uh, Lord, if there's somebody here in need of prayer, the altar's open. If somebody here is in need of church membership, let them come. Lord, if somebody is here just in need of, of you, just to rest in your presence, let it happen today. Lord, thank you for our identity in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen.